everybody. This is Bob Goodwin, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, please make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe. That really helps. And for those of you who are listening to this on your favorite podcast platform, if you wouldn't mind dropping a rating and a review in, that really helps as well. But we're mostly just really glad that you're listening. So thank you for that. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Next Placement. Next Placement is Career Club's newest offering for companies who are needing to transition employees. It's sort of our answer to outplacement, where we're bringing a more people-centric, empathetic approach to help with the mental wellness, emotional intelligence, and community that job seekers need. So please check out Next Placement at Career.club. Um, today's guest, I am really excited to have. I've wanted to have him on for quite a while. This is David Weiser. David is the managing director of Weiser Partners, a firm that he started in 1995, doing executive search, specializing in sales, marketing, and insights professionals at the C-suite level, typically. David, if, if you're listening to this and you're consumer packaged goods, marketing, sales, you're probably already familiar with this firm and you're probably on his email list because he is in my view, the de facto standard for excellence in executive search. And uh, just really, really pleased to have David come on and share his expertise with us. So with that, David, welcome. Hey, thank you, Bob. It's uh, good to be here. And by the way, it's not that I was playing hard to get, because when you say jump, I will say how high. So <laughs> I love what you're building here and, and happy to be a guest on your show. No, well, and in, in, in all seriousness, David, I'm really, really pleased to have you on. You, 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 I generally meant what I said. I think you are the gold standard, uh, particularly in the functional areas. Do you mind maybe just very quickly uh, explain to people sort of the niche that Wiser Partners has and why you founded the firm? Sure. I, I founded the firm um, largely because having been on the other end of recruiter calls and being a little bit underwhelmed and disappointed, I just I thought there was a better mousetrap. Um, you know, some of the things I thought were missing, talking to a recruiter who really didn't have the functional background for the role they're recruiting, it was really hard for them to understand answers to questions if they were even asking me functional questions. Yeah. Um, and then when I would ask questions about the role in the company, I could hear the paper scrambling and uh, it just it just didn't feel like a really good relationship. So the whole premise was, um, let's be you know agents, let's be advisors. Let's have a functional background in areas we recruit so that we can advise clients in a different way and so that we can really interview and understand somebody's capabilities. So like you said, we started off in marketing, kind of expanded to sales, further expanded into research, insights, data science. Uh, right now, marketing is still 40 to 50 percent of what we do. Yep. Um, we also have a separate C-level practice, Bob, all mid-market private equity owned companies where We'll recruit CEOs and CFOs. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And and again, you know, having been you know on your mailing list and familiar with your work for you know a number of years now, very high quality roles, and it's no surprise to me that people are entrusting to you guys, you know, the the partnership to go help them find the right talent. So I got a little bit ahead of myself. Want to just do kind of our uh, customary icebreaker. So where were you born and raised, David? I grew up in Minneapolis, uh, born in 1965, and Enjoyed living in the Twin Cities uh, and then went off to Dartmouth College in 1983, um, earned a degree in English, minor in sociology, played baseball there, um, and then graduated in 87, uh, moved to Cincinnati, 
Because, of course, as a child, I was dreaming about marketing mouthwash and toothpaste. So <laughs> I had a hard time explaining that to my dad. He That's said, wait funny. a minute, we spent how much to send you to Dartmouth so you could sell toothpaste? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, no, Procter & Gamble is not a bad place to uh, to find yourself. Great place. Um, and so, so you answered uh, a couple questions. So we did university and how you found your way to beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, just a little bit about your family. Sure. Uh, I've been married 32 years. Uh, my wife is Elizabeth and she's a media consultant. Uh, she still works full time. Uh, we've got three kids, uh, 29, 27, 24. Um, our oldest daughter has been married a couple of years. She's got a, a newborn. Um, well, congratulations. That's fun. Grandpa this is awesome. Yeah. Highly recommend it. I know you, you mentioned that to me. I'm still kind of getting used to the concept, but, mm. uh, but they're doing great. Um, she works for a Gulfstream Aerospace mm. in research and analytics. Uh, daughter Emily lives in San Francisco. She works for a private wealth management firm. And then our son, Sam, works for a fintech startup with a couple of ex-Goldman Sachs partners. Very cool. That's awesome. And then um, you, you kind of alluded to it, but uh, so if you don't mind just kind of very briefly kind of paint a little bit of your career history, because you said you started at Proctor and just if you don't mind yes. explaining that for a sec. Sure. So I was at P&G five and a half years, uh, worked on brands like Scope, Crest Toothpaste, uh, some of the Vicks cough cold products, Chloroseptic. That was part of the Richardson Vicks acquisition in 85. Yes. Um, left PNG, loved the experience, um, forever grateful for the training and the connections, um, but just felt like maybe the service side was where I belonged. So I joined a, a company in Cincinnati called On Target Media, mm -hmm. uh, which was started by a great guy named Mike Collette. Um, that has since evolved into a, a really big company called Patient Point. Uh, I was there a couple of years, and then one day I told my wife, uh, hey, I think the world needs another executive search firm. And um, and I started in, uh, I guess it was late 94, early 95. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. Well, congratulations. Uh, as someone who has also started something, it's not easy. And uh, I can't imagine doing it with little kids and, you know, needing to be in peak earning years. So good for you. And then very quickly, you mentioned baseball, but what do we find you doing when uh, when you're not at work? What do you like to do? Uh, we we live on a lake here in South Carolina. Uh, I wish we were out on the lake more often, but we, you know, we're working really full time, but we'll get out on the lake on the weekends. Uh, we're going to spend as much time as we can with our new grandson and our daughter and our son-in-law. Yeah. Um, we don't do a lot of travel. Um, uh, but you know, we keep busy fish, uh, like to watch a NASCAR race, like to watch baseball. Um, I don't do a lot of reading. I kind of feel like I've, I'm read out. Um, yeah. So yeah. We, we're, we're plenty busy. Try to stay fit. Not always successful, but, um, oh, come on, come on. About time for that. You look fantastic. Okay. So, so the reason, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, obviously career club is helping people. You know, we're using sales and marketing principles to help people find a career that matters to them. And in CPG or retail language, I would talk about, well, you need to take an omni-channel approach to this. There's not one right, way, one right way to go get a job. It could be, 
online applying, although I think we all know that that has some limited utility. There's networking, which everyone would advocate. There's executive search. There's direct outreach to companies. There's a myriad of ways to go find your next opportunity. But clearly, executive search is one of them. And, you know, do you mind maybe kind of explaining the two flavors of executive search if you think about retaining contingent? Sure. And then um, I want to unpack a little bit, you know, how candidates can best work with executive search firms. But just to start it off, do you mind kind of just explaining the models that it typically takes? Sure. By the way, you made a great point in your setup here, and maybe we'll come back to this. Um, I think this is kind of like, you know, playing bingo. You know, when you go to a bingo parlor, you don't buy one card, you buy 20. Right. Because you just don't know which one is going to hit. And and you raise a great point. You've got to pursue opportunities through multiple channels. You never know how it's going to happen. But we'll probably talk about that. For sure. A little bit. So, yeah, there, there's two. There's actually three different types of search firms. Um contingency where the firm is paid only if they make a placement, mm-hmm. um, ret- full retained, uh, which is what we do. You know, we, we are the exclusive only partner working on that search and we work it until it's done. Um, and the client commits a fee up front and we commit to finding the, the right hire. There is a third uh, hybrid version um, called contained, which is really a blend of, <laughs> it's a blend of those two. And I understand um, what gave rise to that. I think it's a difficult model to execute um, because the tendency might be for a client to say, look, we'd really rather do this on contingency. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how well those are working, but, but there's a fair number of firms out there who will, who will do both. If, if, if we look at sort of the, the, the two typical ones, because what I want to help listeners understand is sort of, What's the motivation? What is the work style for if you're dealing with a contingency firm versus if you're dealing with a retained search firm? Right. I I think there's definitely a place for contingency. And I think they're pretty effective at lower levels, you know, entry level up through maybe the first five, six, seven years of somebody's career up through a manager level, a manager if we're talking about CPG. Um, you know, the, the limitations with a contingency firm, by definition, because they won't get paid unless they make a hire, it's kind of a numbers game. And it's harder for them to justify the same time investment as an advisor. Um, it's hard for them to justify running candidates through kind of full funnel interviews. Um, now, there are some contingency firms out there who do that. Um, Lack and Daily, for one, out in Connecticut. Uh, we've referred a lot of work there. Um, they're very good and they will actually interview candidates, but most of them just aren't able to do that. Uh, on the retained side, you know, if you're doing it the right way, um, you're spending a lot of time understanding, you know, where, where a candidate is trying to get to um, function, industry, level, title, compensation, you name it. So you want to be a good advisor. And we're committing to the client that when we recommend a candidate, we think, number one, they can do the work technically, functionally. And number two, we think they're going to be a good fit. Yep. So that's kind of how we run our interview process. Yep. And so so if you're a candidate, you can probably start to sense pretty quickly based on even the initial engagement with the executive search person. Hey, just, hey, send me a resume. Like I did, like, you know, I'm just trying to move stuff and just, hey, they're in a hurry and don't have a lot of time to invest. 
again, I know that we're speaking in generalities and it's probably very unfair to some contingency firms, but typically, as you said, it's a numbers game. Therefore, they need to kind of be fast and efficient. Whereas in, in retained search, it's slower, more of a deep dive. We're committed to getting the right person in the role, whatever it takes, because that's what we've been retained to do. Is that fair? That's how it should be. Um, I encourage people just ask right up front. So whether you get an inbound email or a phone call, um, just ask the recruiter up front. Are you, are you a contingent firm or are you retained on the search? It's a perfectly fair question. Nobody should have a, a problem answering that question. But what do I do with that information? So I, I ask them, how should I interpret what they tell me and, and how should I act accordingly? Well, it certainly should set up an expectation about how engaged and how involved you might be with that recruiter. So if they say, hey, we're doing this on a contingent basis, they're probably not going to spend a ton of time. So what's really important is that you give them, you know, the, the most critical stuff they need to know. Um, this is where I live and I can't move or we're trying to move to this city. Uh, this is the industry I'd like to be in. This is the level that would be interesting to me, the title that I'd find compelling. Um, compensation has gotten dicey as a, as a conversation because um, I think a majority of states now have have um, outlawed um, our even asking somebody what they earns. What the, uh, so there's ways around that, but you want to make sure if it's a contingent recruiter, you get that on the table right away. And by the way, you want to say the same things to a retained recruiter, but, but that may come in pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny on the, um, even when we're dealing with clients and you were trying to help them land in their next spot, you know, I will ask, and again, I'm not executive search per se, but, you know, helping people just make sure that we're, as I say, shopping in the right neighborhoods, you know, so right. like what kind of comp are you looking at, you know, whether it's base and total comp, I just want to make sure that the things that, you know, we help find with you, you know, are appropriate because, and similarly, you know, if, if uh, a friend's call me for a referral on something, I'm like, well, help me understand the comp because I just want to make sure I don't send you somebody who's making 250 and you guys are looking to pay 125 for this. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. And it's a fair question to ask a recruiter, right? Um, what's the compensation range for the role? You may get a couple of different types of answers, but <clears throat> they, they should have an idea. And if they don't or if they're not willing to share my suggestion is you just politely say, listen, when you've got a sense for what the compensation is going to be, just get back to me and let's pick this right back up. Well, that's such a tactful way of saying it, but, but it sort of establishes too, like the authority I have in my career. Like, like I, I should be able to ask it. This is a very basic question. That it, it is. No, it is, Bob. And, and look, you're also respecting the recruiter's time and the client's time. You don't want to go down a path. Um, thinking that you know you might need 250 as a base, you find out it's 190, mm -hmm. uh, and you wasted everybody's time. So uh, the recruiter should be doing that to make sure everything is aligned. Yes, um, but it's it's a very fair question to ask. Okay, cool. So one thing that I wanted to to talk with you a little bit about, if we could just zoom out for a second, you know, we're in a very interesting talent market these days, right? You know. Um, Ostensibly, tech has sort of turned the spigot off for a while. They were in a land grab with talent and then kind of went, whoa, slow down and kind of unwound a lot of what they had done. And on the other side, we see, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's say it's order of magnitude, two to one, you know, openings to talent available. 
I'm just curious what, what you're seeing. And I, I do want to be very specific to you know, the niche area that you guys service because it overlaps really, really well with our listeners. Right. Uh, of what you're seeing in the talent market and how that's evolved over the past few months. Sure. Uh, I think most firms would tell you and, and most articles you read would suggest that volume so far in 2023 is off versus last year. And, and 2022 was down a little bit from 2021. Um, there was just a lot of um, a lot of tailwind in a lot of industries with COVID. I mean, a lot of headwinds too, but, but a lot of tailwinds. Um, but I think 2023 is more in line with 2018 and 2019. So um, it's not. I don't perceive 2023 as being really down. I think it's uh, in line with the period before we got this unusual COVID spike. Um, there's some sectors that I think are still strong. Healthcare, financial services still seem to be pretty strong. Uh, CPG is strong. Um, I mean, during COVID, if you sold a product or a service that was consumed in or around the home, if you weren't doing well, you were really mismanaging your business. Um, and I think we're continuing to see that uh, travel, entertainment, I think, are still off a little bit. Hospitality still yeah. off a little bit um, as travel's just inching its way back. Mm-hmm. Although th- that, that should generally be a tailwind as people are one. Obviously, we, we've pretty much come out of COVID and it seems like consumer dollars are shifting to services and experiences more than stuff. Yes. Um, so we we should expect that those continue to do well. When you think about marketers, because because I, at least in my mind, David, you can you can say that's not right, but you know I think of you guys as doing. I think you said forty percent of the roles you do are marketers, and and I see you guys have some very high quality roles. How has from the clients' specifications, desires, requirements for marketers? How's that changing and, and has the priorities flipped or switched at all in terms of here's sort of the key things we're looking for compared to maybe five years ago? Sure. The biggest shift, and again, I've been doing this almost 30 years, um, you know, after Al Gore invented the Internet, everything started changing. Um, the, the biggest debate I will have with a CEO or a CHRO when when they call and say we want a new chief marketing officer, my first question is, what type are you looking for? Um, you know, there's different prototypes. There's kind of the traditional brand marketer. Um, there's more of the direct marketer, direct response marketer, and then, you know, the digital and performance marketer. What I've seen, Bob, over the years is a just a rapid shift to, you know, digital and performance uh, as the definition for what you want in a CMO. Depending on the type of company you are, I'm not sure that's always the right answer. Um, I still believe that the digital is largely about activation. It's tactical. I think it's a level two or a level three hire. I wouldn't necessarily define my chief marketing officer first and foremost as a performance marketer. Again, depends on the type of business. But if you're selling omni-channel, brick and mortar is still a big part of your business, consumer brands. I still like the, the prototypical CPG brand marketer. You know, those people for the last 10 years have overseen a digital marketing mix. It's not as though, you know, this is going to be a first run for them. Uh, Tactically, they may not be the hands-on keyboard type. They they may not be spending hours every day in Google Analytics. That's what you want level two or level three. So that's the biggest debate that we have. You know, what type of CMO do you need? 
Yeah. And, and so if you, if you're becoming introduced with a client and they start off with, well, David, I'm a classically trained marketer. You're going good. If, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. First. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because sometimes what I hear is, Oh, because they think the, the, the person asking the question thinks that, Oh, I need to hear all the digital stuff. And you're saying, well, actually you need the strategy piece first. We'll get to the tactical stuff. Right. Along the way. Yeah. If you're not really skilled in uh, brand positioning, uh, consumer segmentation, really answering the big questions, where to play, how to win, um, you know, digital native isn't going to do you any good. So, yeah, I think the fu- they're called fundamentals for a reason. Yeah. You know, when yeah, William well, Proctor and James Gamble were selling, you know, <laughs> candles down on the Ohio River, you know, they were still working off the fundamentals that I think are still just as relevant today. Which is what one thing that I think is so cool about sort of the integrated nature of your practice, right? Because we talked about research, insights, data, and analytics. Well, that's where those insights are found to identify unmet consumer needs. And then how do we go meet those better than the competition? And then the activation piece is just getting in front of them, either with messaging or the ability to actually buy the product. That's right. That's right. Yep. Um, with um, one of the things that we hear a lot about these days with marketing and sales uh, and again, I'm going CPG for just a second, is retail media networks. Are, are you hearing that a lot from your clients and, and what role that's playing in terms of importance of mix? Uh, again, I think it depends on the type of company. Um, and, you know, with our mix, a, a lot of it is consumer, but we do a lot on the B2B and enterprise side. Yeah. And I think as more and more companies have explored alternate channels for marketing and selling products and services, um, you know, the, the type of spend and the type of media mix um, could look very different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then um, thinking about sales as a function and CROs, chief customer officers, whatever the role is called at the company, how's that evolved over time? And, and where do you see that going? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, a lot of companies have, uh, particularly on the B2B side, but even on the consumer side, they've been pushing marketing and sales together. Uh, there still might be a head of marketing and a head of sales, but but this is chief commercial officer yep. position started popping up maybe four or five years ago. And I just see more and more of that. Again, depending on the business and what they're selling and who they're selling it to, that might make sense. I think it definitely makes sense on the enterprise side. Um, you know, ultimately that that chief commercial officer is either going to be it's going to be a capital M marketing and a small S or vice versa mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the background and experience they bring. And, and do you see chief growth officer some? Sure. And what does that I mean? A lot, I see a lot of titles. Um, we have taught clients out of using some titles because <clears throat> it just may not fully embrace the scope of the work or it may not resonate mm-hmm. with the type of person that, that you're looking for. But yeah, chief growth. I've seen that used both on the sales side and on the marketing side. Got it. So, so let's double click because one of the things that I really wanted to we, we talked earlier. I'm going to circle back to the different kinds of firms, but you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is building a relationship with executive search firms, kind of before you need them, and maybe yeah. before they need you. Could you pick that thread up for a minute? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Um, if you remember, and you're a Cincinnati guy, um, you know, back in 2006, 2007, 
my wife asked me a half dozen times, hey, we, we need to get a whole home generator, right? Just in case. And I said, yeah, we'll get to it. I've got other things I'd rather spend $8,000 on. And then in, if you remember in mid-September of 2008, you know, the Hurricane Ike, the remnants kind of roared into the Ohio Valley and, you know, we were out of power for a whole week. And of course, by October 1st, I had our $8,000 Generac whole home generator in place. But the problem was I put it in after I needed it. So yeah, yeah to your point, um, if if you're looking to build relationships with recruiters, when you suddenly find yourself in transition, you're going to you're going to have an extended transition. So you absolutely want to start building that network out right now. Oh, and by the way, you want to also be that backup generator to other people. <laughs> so, so, but the double click is how do I build that relationship? I'm going to be very crass for a yeah. minute. Yeah. But, but if a recruiter, particularly contingency, is highly transactional, yes, like, like, like I'm not trying to build relationships right now. I'm trying to get paid on filling a role. And oh, by the way, you know, you don't look like anything I'm working on right this minute. So I don't have time. Right. Right. Well, um, I think the best, let's just say worst case scenario, you literally don't have any recruiter relationships right now. What I suggest to people, and it's very simple advice, but people who have done it have said it's very effective. First of all, make a list of former bosses and mentors, you know, people who you really respected, you had a good relationship. They've gone on to do great things. Um, reach out to them. Just send them a simple email. Uh, hey, Bob, listen, um, I'm, I'm looking for a new opportunity. Uh, I'm sure you're connected with some really good recruiters. You know, you know my industry, my function. I'm looking for something at this level. Um, could you suggest a couple, not, not 20, but a couple who you've worked with, who you really respect, they've listened to you, you trust what they're sharing. Um, I would love it if you could make a personal introduction. Would you do me that favor? People generally want to help out. Amen. Um, and if you send that email out to, you know, six, seven former bosses or mentors, uh, you'll be amazed at how quickly you've got some new relationships. And, and by the way, they don't need to send uh, their, uh, your resume to the recruiter contact. They just need to make a very simple introduction. Um, and that kind of helps you bypass the line. It puts you right yeah. to the front of the line when you're coming in with that kind of an endorsement. And so when you're on the receiving end of that, so say, you know, Julie sends you an email and says, hey, I'd like to introduce you to my former colleague, Bob. You know, Bob is X and is looking for Y. Um, what's your reaction to that? Uh, well, again, generally, I will put that person up to the front of the line. Um, and, and, you know, certainly if it's somebody who we've done a lot of work with in the past and we know them and we trust them, um, we're going to, we're going to create time. Uh, you know, I get 50 emails a day from people saying, Hey, I'd like to pick your brain for 30 minutes. Um, I wish I had that amount of time. Um, but every day I'll find time for at least three or four of those. And mm -hmm. generally those are people who are moving right to the front of the line because my friend Bob said, Hey, you really need to understand and talk to Stephanie. She's a really good talent. I think, uh, I think you'd want to have a relationship there.